most complete in himself. And the fact that he has a satiety, he has no needs, and that includes you. And it includes me. He is Hashim. He is the name. Now that's Old Testament. And man, how does this change in Matthew 121? You will call his name Jesus. And you can pronounce it. You can praise it. You can glorify it. You can curse it. You can blaspheme it. But you'll call his name Jesus. The Old Testament understanding of Yahweh was that he... God is holy, righteous, and therefore a Savior. What did Matthew say? You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people. That constitutes the name of Jesus. Savior. Because God is righteous. It is his own righteousness that caused him to bring Jesus, to birth the child, to hold, as we just sang, God in Mary's hands, in Joseph's hands. And so God was satisfied to bring Jesus, the Christ, into the world. Scottish theologian P.T. Forsyth, we closed with a quote from him last week. He fought World War I, by the way, was wounded. Spent a great deal of time in the latter years uh, writing a number of books. And in one of those books, he says, If it is God's holiness that reveals sin to be sin, it is also God's holy, holiness that necessitates the work of Christ, that calls for it, and that provides it. God was in Christ. John Piper. Christ's sufferings were the measure of his love for the Father's glory. It was the Father's righteous allegiance, his allegiance to his own name, to the Hashim, that made recompense for sin necessary. We find this all over the Old Testament. That my name, you will not take the name, the Hashim of the Lord in vain. And that's done, that's probably done billions of times every single day on planet Earth. His righteous allegiance to his own name that, met, that made recompense for sin necessary. Next slide. So last Sunday we saw that forgiveness of sins requires that God be satisfied. For God to be satisfied requires none other than God himself to become the sacrifice the substitute. 
and God knew this. In fact, we find in other passages of Scripture that this occurred even before the foundations of the world were laid. We spent some time a few weeks ago when we were in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be returning there uh, shortly. In verses 4 through 12, it talked about the priesthood of believers. In fact, sang about the cornerstone this morning. We uh, had looked at that particular passage of Scripture. And because we, as believers, have this special priesthood, it is specifically our privilege in the New Testament that believers require no intermediators between God and man. And that is a great, great privilege. But in the Old Testament, millions and maybe even billions, but certainly millions of sacrifices were substituted to appease God's holiness, his righteousness. So in that cradle, in the little town of Bethlehem that we just sang about, the house of bread that housed the bread of life. Lay the supreme substitute, God himself, God in Christ. It's therefore necessary to interpret Jesus, the name Savior, to interpret Jesus' death as a sacrifice because it is embedded. We talked about the Old Testament, all these things. We'll look at some of these in just a moment. But it is embedded in New Testament. You can't, you can't go through the Gospels. You cannot go through the Epistles. You can't go through the general Epistles or the book of Revelation and not see the unfolding of Christ's death as a sacrifice, as a substitute for our sins. In the Old Testament, there are two categories of sacrifices. We looked at some of these, as I said, in 1 Peter chapter 2. Just to refresh your memory, the first series expressed that mankind belongs to God by right of who he is. These have to do with God as creator. And the second types are expressed as our alienation from God because of our sin and guilt. And God required them both. Now the first types, those of the fact that we have a creator and we are uh, stewards of his, first types were the peace and fellowship offerings. These were sacrifices associated with thanksgiving if we took the time this morning, we could go back to Leviticus 7 and we could see these listed. Uh, they also included the burnt offering and the three annual harvest feasts, which were listed for us in uh, Exodus chapter 23. And we'll, as we started that on Sunday evening, we will eventually be there. So these were the first types, the peace and the fellowship offering. But they were not the only offerings. Next slide. The second types were the sin and the guilt offerings. And as you might imagine, there were more of these than there were the peace and fellowship offerings. 
God demanded, yet required for us, to acknowledge our sin and our need for atonement. This began with uh, the Hebrew people. We spoke briefly about this when we looked at the moral responsibility we have to accept our responsibility with true guilt. God made that evident to the Hebrews. It was repeated time and again in the Old Testament, and now we see God in Christ who died for our sins according to the Scripture. Now both types of these sacrifices, there are five basic sacrifices listed in the book of Leviticus, but both of these types of sacrifices, the peace and the fellowship offerings and the sin and the guilt offerings, recognized God's grace. I don't like the Old Testament because you don't see the grace of God. You don't know the Old Testament. And if someone says that to you, then you need to say, uh, with all due respect, I beg to differ with you. Because that blasphemes the name of God. It recognizes God's grace and their dependence, therefore our dependence, Upon it, this doesn't change with the offering of Jesus Christ. Now, the great Princeton theologian, B.B. Warfield, an American, distinguished between them as this. He said the first one, first type, has to do with man conceived merely as a creature, responsible to his creator, or creature claiming protection. I'm going to make this offering to satisfy the requirements of my creator so that I might be protected. And secondly, he said, that the guilt and the sin offerings had to do with the needs of man as a sinner. Sinners have needs. And so he wrote these needs, the needs of man as a sinner, or a sinner craving pardon. So these are the two types, and both of these types are fulfilled as God is in Christ. Now substitution, fairly simple definition, an animal, in the Old Testament it was animals, or a person, New Testament, one person, takes the place of another, especially to bear the person's pain, and so to save him or her pain. And this is, a, this is a good thing. It's noble and good to spare people pain, if you can. Thank God for anesthesia. It spares us pain. Some meds spare us pain. Thank God for those. It is good that someone be substituted, some animal or some person, to take away our pain. the pain of sin. In the Old Testament, animals were mainly the sacrifices that were substituted for the the Hebrew people. We're told a story in World War II, a Polish Franciscan monk by the name of Father Max Colby was imprisoned in the Auschwitz concentration camp and 
even though he was a Christian, Catholic, among Jews, he was an individual that ministered to those that were in the concentration camp. One day, he heard that there were a number of prisoners that had been selected for execution. So he made his way to that particular tribunal. And among them was a man that was married with children. Had a number of children. And the man cried to be spared. And the Nazi officials said, no, you're going to the gallows. Father Colby stepped forward and he asked to substitute himself for the condemned man. The Nazis went into a huddle and after several minutes of deliberation they said, we accept your substitution, but we're not going to hang you. We're going to put you into solitary confinement and leave you there to starve to death. Now this is just one human example of substitution, and they did and he did. Abraham took Isaac as a sacrifice because God told him, take your son, your only son, and offer him to me. Now, I'm sure that this shocked Abraham. Pagan sacrifices of children were uh, were common in Abraham's day, but he did what the Lord required of him. God intervened and he substituted a ram or a lamb for Isaac. Now here's the thing. The lamb was sacrificed in place of Isaac. He took Isaac's pain. He took Isaac's death. God did not eliminate the sacrifice. There are those today, this is not unique to today, if you go back and study church history, they go back 2,000 years, there are some that say, this is what God did, or this is what God could have done, but God never eliminates the, sacri the requirement for the sacrifice. It's always, always blood for sin. He substituted another in Isaac's place. Sin must be atoned for because that satisfies God. And we covered this last Sunday when we were looking at the holiness and the love and the attributes of God. These, sat uh, sat uh, excuse me, these um, satisfy God's requirements. Four of the five Levitical offerings required a blood sacrifice. The grain offering was the only one that didn't. That was a fellowship offering meant to appease the Creator. Next slide, if you would. 
Now we learn this from the book of Leviticus. And in chapter 17 we are told, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. This is Yahweh speaking. This is the Hashim speaking. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. In fact, the blood sacrifice predates the Levitical law. We see that in Abraham. We see that all the way back to Cain and Abel. We see it in the Garden of Eden. God is the giver of life. God is the first taker of life. Now, there are three principles contained in this verse. This is God speaking to Moses. Blood is the symbol of life, Moses. And shed blood represents a life that has violently ended. When we sing... We preach or we teach about the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, it recommends or it, it, remember, it reminds us that Christ himself died violently. He didn't die in bed. He didn't die in a hospital. Secondly, blood makes atonement. And only blood. That blood emphasizes the vibrancy of the life that is lived. The reason God demanded a lamb, a yearling, a male of about a year old was the vibrancy of the life of that lamb. One life is forfeited and another life is substituted. But the sacrifice has to be made. Life was given for life, the life of the victim for the life of the offerer. And thirdly, in that verse, God says, I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. I'm the creator, I make life, I can take life, I give you the sacrifice. Blood was given by God. The purpose of atonement. And the Old Testament sacrificial system was God-given. It was not human-fixed. It was God-given. And if you study ancient faiths or ancient religions, you'll come across the differences, the major and primary differences between the Levitical sacrificial system and any and all of the other pagan systems. Now, there are two passages in the book of Hebrews that remind us of the insufficiency of animal sacrifices. Hebrews 9 reminds us that according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Without the violent extermination of a life, you're not forgiven. Hebrews 10 teaches us that it was not possible that the blood of bulls or goats should take away sins. 
it appeased God. It didn't satisfy. There is no forgiveness without blood that meant that there's no atonement without substitution, without sacrifice. Can't be had any other way. If it could have, God would have made it happen. God in Christ. This is what he requires. Next slide. Now, we looked at 1 Peter chapter 1. We spent some time there, and in verses 18 and 19, it says, We are not redeemed with corruptible things. Animals were corruptible. Peter says, We are not redeemed with silver or gold. We've been transformed. And he says, That happens with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or spot. So this precious blood of Jesus Christ was given for our sins. And as we go through the remainder of the message, we'll see that that was some mysterious execution of the judgment of God on himself. The Old Testament substitution ends in the cradle. When Jesus is born, it's done away with. Now, Jesus did offer sacrifices. His Joseph and Mary offered turtle doves on the day that he was circumcised. Even poor people were required to bring an offering. They didn't get subsidies from the government. They were required to bring an offering. And so they did. The substitution, because Christ shed his blood, was a penal substitution. It was payment, a violent payment for what was rightfully deserved by you and me. Christ bears what we could not bear, thankfully. And that's why we celebrate his first advent. Packer said, Jesus Christ our Lord moved by love that was determined to do everything necessary to save us. Remember that. Everything necessary to save us. Endured and exhausted the destructive divine judgment for which we were otherwise in escapably destined. And so Christ won us forgiveness, adoption, and glory. The glorification that will follow from this life. To affirm penal substitution is to say that believers are in debt to Christ specifically for his violent death. And this, and that this is the main spring, uh, mainspring of all of our joy, all of our peace, all of our praise, both now and for eternity.
Christ endured and exhausted. Remember last Sunday we closed out with reminding you that God, when, when God's wrath fills up, when his anger fills up, he pours, his out, pours it out completely. He ends his anger. Jesus endured and God exhausted the destructive divine judgment than for you and I. Now, Galatians 3, 13, and in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, which we read uh, in your hearing this morning. Let's read that again. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, Christ secured two things for us. He took our curse. That's what Galatians 3, 13 says. Made to be a curse. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. He took our curse so that we might receive his blessings. And the second thing was, he became sin with our sins. So that we might receive his righteousness as our righteousness. The righteousness of God in him. God in Christ. He suffered the legal consequences of our sins. He accepted God the Father's liability for our sin. What a Savior. How sad it is that we pass over all of this. And we flippantly say, well, Jesus saved me from my sin. Yes, he did. But in a manner where he endured and exhausted divine judgment. Next slide. So the next few minutes as we close this out, how did God take our place? How did he die our death on the cross? I delivered unto you the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ died for us. Literally meaning Christ died instead of us in our place. And then we've read here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, specifically verse 19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them which would mean that we would endure and exhaust the divine judgment. You see, unsaved sinners will endure. And because they're mortal, they will never exhaust. See, that's the thing we forget. Only the immortal God-man, Jesus Christ, could exhaust the divine judgment of his Father. Only. Mortal human beings will never exhaust the divine judgment. God the Father acted through God the Son to reconcile or to restore and morally transform sinners. 
morally transformed according to what we understand in the teaching of the New Testament and Jesus himself. This God brings into the life of sinners because of the work of God the Son. Reconciliation back to him. Now the act was parallel. And you need to stay with me now. The act was parallel. God in Christ. Both as one. Not two separate. Not three separate. God, in Christ, made our reconciliation effectual. Sinners being reconciled require this to take place. It required the intervention of God. Turn to Colossians chapter 1. Hold your place because we'll come back to 2 Corinthians here in just a moment. Turn over. Just a couple of books to Colossians chapter 1. God in Christ. Paul wrote to the church of Colossae, verse 19, for it pleased, chapter 1, for it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness shall, shall dwell. And by him, Christ, to reconcile all things to himself, God in Christ, by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven have been made peace. And he's not greater God than his fall. In him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead in human form. God the Father doesn't have a body. He's spirit. Jesus himself said so. Dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And because of this, he says, and you are complete in him. There's nothing else that you can ask for. He was the head of all the principality and power. And principality and power, we learned as we were going through 1 Peter, that is one of the uh, indications of, uh, uh, of uh, Ram's of um, probably demons. God was in Christ. God resides in Christ. He reconciles all things to himself because of Christ. He makes peace because God was in Christ. Now last Sunday we quoted this from Anselm, but I need to do it again this morning. It is needful that the very same person who is able to make satisfaction be perfect God and perfect man. And here's why. No one can do it except one that is truly God. And no one ought to do it except one that's truly man. God was not obligated to pay for our sins. In his love, his grace, his mercy, his kindness, his compassion, ad infinitum, 
He determined to take our sins. Next slide. So the only way for God's holy love to be satisfied is for his holiness to be directed by his judgment upon either a sinner, me, And when his judgment falls on the sinner, it brings death. It brings physical death in this life, and it will bring eternal death, the second death, in the life that is to come. Or upon a substitute, so that his holy love can be directed toward us in forgiveness. This goes all the way back to what our forgiveness for sins. So God's substitute, God in Christ, bears the penalty. <coughs> so that sinners will receive his pardon. Who then is God's substitute? Well, we know it's Christ, but Paul says it's God in Christ. Now here's the thing. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now here's the thing. Because we have finite minds, we struggle with the unity within the Trinity. <coughs> And we're thinking all the time that when Jesus became incarnated, he and his father were separate. That's not what Paul says. God was in Christ. Christ is not independent from the fall. He wasn't prior to the creation, and he wasn't during the incarnation, and he certainly isn't today. Not independent from. He is in God. You could say Christ in God. As God is in Christ. He is one. With the Trinity. At all times. We struggle with that. But that's what the Bible says. God was in Christ. When all of this took place on Calvary, God was in Christ when he was birthed into the cradle. When Mary held Jesus and she looked into his eyes as a babe, she saw God in Christ. When Mary went to the cross with Jesus and she heard the seven pronunciations of Christ from the cross, God was in Christ on the cross. God, by necessity, was with Christ because without God our sins cannot be forgiven. The cross then reconciles two parties. You and I, guilty sinners, and God made man in Christ. Romans 5 says, for, when, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, 
Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. R.W. Dale wrote, The mysterious unity of the Father and the Son rendered it possible for God at once to endure and to inflict penal suffering. And I put the little word seal up there. Think about that. He endured and inflicted upon himself this babe in a manger that matured to become God's substitute. What a God we serve. Next slide. In order to save us to God's satisfaction, and certainly we're saved to God's satisfaction, but in order to do that, a substitute that is God and man, the cradle held God in Christ. The cradle held Christ in God. John Stott, and I'll read from his book here in just a moment, but in one of his quotes he says, Divine love triumphed over divine wrath to be divine self-sacrifice. Divine, divine, divine. The cross was an act simultaneously of punishment and amnesty, of severity and grace, of justice and mercy. The cross was not a punishment for a meek and mild Jesus by a harsh and violent fall. We hear that today. Heard it through church history. A meek and mild Jesus didn't go to the cross. God the Son went to the cross. God in Christ. It was not an, an attaining of salvation by a loving Christ from a mean and cruel father. The cross displays the righteous, loving father humbling himself to become in and through his only son. He became flesh. He became sin and the curse for all sinners. God in Christ. And he redeemed us without compromising his own character. God satisfied himself by substituting himself for our sin. This is a Christmas story. Next slide. Now there's another component here that we need to remember. It's another component of substitution. And it lies at the heart of our sin. Why did it require substitute? Here's why. If the essence of God is God's substitute, essence rather of salvation is God substituting himself for sinners, then the essence of our sin is man substituting himself for God. 
Well, I don't do that, preacher. Yeah, we do. I do it. Yes, we do. Man asserts himself against God and makes himself an idol where only God deserves to be. You'll have no other gods before me. Very first commandment. But God substitutes himself for man, placing himself in the place, the cross, where only man deserves to be. So man claims the entitlements that belong to God only. I want the praise, I want the glory, I want the pride, I want all of these things. These belong to God only. And then God accepts the penalties that belong to man alone. This is the essence and the truth then of God in Christ. Christ is the one and only God-man, the mediator between God and man. Because we do substitute ourselves in the place of God, it was necessary that God become man. So there's the alternative, or there is the, the uh, other side of the story, so to speak. We substitute ourselves for God. Next slide. Only God in Christ could take our place. Only God in Christ could satisfy the Trinity. Only God in Christ can forgive us our sins. If he was not who he and the apostles, Jesus himself claimed it, if he was not who he and the apostles said he was, he could not have done what he did. So no hogwash about being a great teacher no baloney about being someone that is, was just uh, quite a bit more intelligent than the rest of us. If he was not God in Christ, he could not have done what he did. Incarnation is indispensable to our salvation. It brings about the atonement. The love, the holiness, and the will of the Father are identical with the love, the holiness, and the will of the Son. So God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. From the cradle to the cross, forgiveness, satisfaction, and substitution for sins leads to salvation for sin. And we'll examine that next Sunday morning. Carl Barth wrote, It is the judge who in this passion takes the place of those who ought to be judged. Who in this passion allows himself to be judged in their place. The passion of Jesus Christ is the judgment of God in which the judge himself was the judge. This he did for you and I. 
Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. This is the sole reason that he came. I have come to seek and to save the lost. That's it. If you're looking for what are those statements that we used to, the purpose statements and so forth that companies come up with now, let's have a purpose, we've got to have a purpose-driven statement, we've got to have all of these things, this is what we're focused on and so forth. I was involved with all of that many, many years ago. That's it. I have come to seek and save the lost. He's seeking you if you know him not as Savior. The judge became judged for you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. On this Christmas morning, may we not leave here without an understanding of the great truth that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. We thank you that you made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might have his righteousness in our place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.